Welcome to Magazine 3 and the exhibition The Nature of Particles. My name is Tessa Praun and I'm the curator for this exhibition. In this audio guide you will hear me as well as the artist Jake Chapman and also Karin Sidén, Associate Professor and Director General of the Museum Prins Eugens Valdemarsudde here in Stockholm. The idea for this exhibition came about when my colleague Richard Julian and I were working on the exhibition Like a Prayer, which opened in the fall of 2015 and continues here at Magazine 3 until this summer. We were gathering a selection of works from the Magazine 3 collection on the theme of crisis, with a focus on the hope that exists in times of crisis. One of the works we chose to exhibit was Disasters of War by the British brothers Jake and Dennis Chapman a series of etchings from 1999. The inspiration for this work is the 19th century Spanish artist Francisco Goya's suite of etchings called Los Desastres de la Guerra, The Disasters of War. Goya's series depicts the abuses that the Spanish people suffered at the hands of Napoleon's army as well as the people's revenge on the French soldiers during the invasion of Spain. Within the field of art history, these etchings are often discussed as the first non-romanticized depictions of war. In the 83 etchings by the Chapman brothers, we find both additions to Goya's motifs and completely standalone works in which they have incorporated the conflicts of our time, surrealist ideas and childish humor. The brothers' participation in Like a Prayer has now been expanded with the exhibition The Nature of Particles, which presents a group of newer works by the Chapman brothers, along with 20 etchings from Goya's original edition. While Like a Prayer focuses on hope in a moment of crisis, the nature of particles can be seen to originate in the nightmare. Jake and Dinos Chapman were born in Great Britain in 1966 and 1962 respectively and have collaborated as artists since the early 90s after they both completed their studies at the Royal College of Art in London. Together with other young British artists, they received a great deal of attention in the 90s for their frequently explicit works on controversial subjects. Their works were exhibited as part of the Young British Artist Exhibitions Sensation and Brilliant. In 2003, the Chapman brothers were nominated for the prestigious Turner Prize. In addition to films and drawings, they often sculpt plastic and glass fibers to create violent scenes that are simultaneously grotesque and humorous. In their art, Jake and Dinos Chapman delve into the dark side of human nature our inclination toward violence and war, the aesthetics of fear, the uncritical assumption that children are innocent and asexual, the perils of a consumer society and the very creation of art are examples of topics they address. They have said that they are interested in the representation of that which is hard to depict and in putting the observer in a state of complete moral panic. At the center of the exhibition, you will find 20 etchings from Francisco Goya's series Los Desastres de la Guerra, which he created between 1810 and 1823. Our ability to show them here at Magazine 3 this spring is thanks to a generous loan from the Swedish National Museum, which has in its collection a complete set of 83 etchings from the first edition from 1863. The idea to display them at Magazine 3 while the Chapman's Disasters of War can still be seen in the exhibition Like a Prayer came from my own desire to see Goya's original, 
Don't miss the opportunity to go in there and see it too. And also to see Goya's originals in conjunction with the other works that the Chapman brothers have created in recent years. My aim is partly to give a deeper insight into how the Chapmans have worked with Goya's depictions of war and also to give the opportunity for a more nuanced reading of a contemporary artistic practice that is not infrequently criticized for simply being sensationalist and provocative. The Chapman brothers have time and again returned to Goya's war images. They are fascinated by Goya's powerful images at the same time as they question how these are seen as moral lessons with the goal of preventing violence. Jake Chapman thinks there is an enormous conflict between creating, as Goya did, incredibly strong but also attractive images of repulsive violence and simultaneously infusing them with a moral statement. Now Jake Chapman will tell us more about his and Dino's relationship to Goya. Um, when Dinos and I decided to work together um, towards the completion of our studies at the Royal College of Arts, um, we considered what it was to, to restart as um, artists that would make up a collaborative um, practice. Um, and in thinking about beginning again, we wanted to think about perhaps the beginning of, of something like modern art in itself. So um, in considering the idea of, of what it is to, to, to start uh, an artistic practice, we returned to the idea of thinking about Goya. Because we considered that Goya, um, in terms of how he's historically framed, is, is often regarded or historically regarded as the first modern artist or the first explicitly modern artist, which is to say that he's the first singular artist that moves away from uh, uh, the kind of the, the, the dependence or, or the, um, the idea of, of religious iconographic representation. That is, that's to say to be employed by the Catholic Church, which of course he was. But when he uh, produces a work like Disasters of War, the suite of 83 etchings, um, it seems to be that he's concerned with um, the idea of uh, 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 the, 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 the internal moral landscape rather than the landscape of, of relig religious um, representation. So in a sense, he's the first artist that begins to um, discover or at least explore or represent the idea of, of, of psychology. Um, the idea of uh, uh, internal torment, the you know the artist racked by um, inner angst and pain, um, and so the works of art, the, the representations that he comes across or produces, seem more concerned with an idea of, of what of what it is to have a, a psyche racked by torment, rather than um, representations which are, are are alloyed to or dependent upon images of God. Um, and so that for us seems to be a good place to start um, um, in our in our in our new beginning. Um, so so that's that's why we we descended upon Goya really. Um, we the first work we decided to make was a uh, a reconstruction of Goya's Disasters of War, but in um, toy form. So what we wanted to do was to somehow uh, remake all of the etchings by copying them in little vignettes made by buying toys, children's toys, and chopping them up and distorting them and mutilating them until they took the shape and the form of Goya's individual etchings. Um, and in a sense, what we were interested in doing was to sort of introduce a very different view about the moral framework associated with Goya's disasters of war um, and to, in some sense, rob 
the pathos of his work or to to diminish the magnitude of, of its representation of death into the domain of play um, and to see what yeah because I guess the thing the thing that interests us interests us about the disaster of war was that uh, institutionally the institutional framework was somehow um, concerned with seeing these works as being um, depictions of man's inhumanity to man as though somehow the, the, the moral framework was somehow set um, but our our uh, excavation or our forensic examination of the work for us uh, revealed something more of a libidinal economy in the work which de which seemed in contradiction to the moral um, the moral observance or, or at least the moral framework that seemed to be kind of closed around that work there's one uh, one etching in particular that we've returned to because it seems in a way uh, um, iconic of our of our critical approach to the work in general and this piece is the um, notorious etching Great Deeds Against the Dead which depicts three figures, three uh, mutilated figures hanging from a tree. Um, in a sense um, we gravitated towards this image because, it, because of its obvious iconographic um, reverberations in terms of how it harmonizes with uh, religious iconography Christ on the cross or at least the Holy Trinity it has a something. It has something of an unholy trinity about it. Um, but what we're interested in is in in terms of how this almost atheistic representation operates in terms of its uh, appropriation of the idea of Newtonian gravity rather than uh, a, a notion of ethereal redemption. So in a sense, what happens with these bodies on this tree is that they sag with the weight of physics uh, against the notion that the the, the death. Um, offers up some notion of redemption. Um, so in this sense, it's a kind of it's extremely atheistic atheistic uh, representation given its time, and also that the paradoxically, you know, that if Goya is as he said, as he as he claims to be uh, a fully paid up Catholic, there's something quite um, interesting about the degree to which the image seems to undermine um, any sense in which the body uh, has any kind of escape from the logic of its of its comp uh, decomposition and its, you know, sort of essential sort of fleshy dripping into the soil. It seems a, a, a highly heretical image for us. We have um, repetitively returned to this image because uh, it seems, um, in a certain sense, there's something quite spiteful about amplifying the uh, the magnitude of, of, of its atheism by increasing its scale or decreasing its scale. We've made versions which are life-size, half-size, and um, you know, we've repeated this over and over. In a sense, um, from our point of view, as, as a kind of a, a, a hilarious repetition of the, of the very underpinning of Goya's atheism, which is in contradistinction to any claims about its moral worth. Um, it seems, seems a, a, a kind of a worthy object for us to um, to descend our parasitical sort of fangs into. <laughs> One person with a wealth of knowledge about Goya is Karin Sidén, Associate Professor and Director General of the Museum Prins Eugens Valdmarsudde in Stockholm and former curator at the Swedish National Museum. Here, Karin discusses Francisco Goya focusing on his series Los Desastres de la Guerra. Goya is undoubtedly one of the most important and acclaimed artists in Western art history. The artistic production he left behind is multifaceted, powerfully expressive 
experimental and extensive. His art, not least his graphic works, has inspired artists and authors even into our own age. Born in Fuendetodos, a little village southwest of Zaragoza, 1746, Francisco de Goya y Lucientes began studying art at the young age of 13 with painter José Lozán in Zaragoza. During his later appointment in the 1770s at the Royal Tapestry Factory in Santa Barbara, outside of Madrid, he made sketches in Rococo style for Gobelin-style tapestries intended for the Spanish royal family and the aristocracy. Early on, he also created religious motives, allegories and portraits for the upper echelons of society. In 1786, Goya was appointed court painter to the Spanish king Carlos III. From this point on, Goya served as court painter and portraitist for many years. Paradoxically, he was part of the establishment of his time and simultaneously starkly critical in some of his works of representatives of this power, not least the Catholic Church and the Inquisition. The graphic series Los Desastres de la Guerra, in English The Disasters of War, problematized the consequences of power and powerlessness. Goya's life and active period as an artist stretched over a period of time marked by great shifts in thought, art and society. Having grown up with the rational ideals of the Enlightenment, he was later influenced by the romantic world of imagination and thought. He also experienced and interpreted in pictorial form the French invasion of Spain in 1808 and the horrors of the resulting war from 1808 to 1814, as well as the terrible famine in Madrid from 1811 to 1812. On a personal level, Goya suffered a serious illness after a stay in Seville in 1793 that left him deaf for the rest of his life. In 1824, Goya left Spain for health reasons and settled in Bordeaux in France. On April 16, 1828, Goya died in Bordeaux, but his remains were moved to Madrid in 1901 and later, in 1929, to the church San Antonio La Florida in Madrid. Goya created four large-scale graphic series during his lifetime. Los Desastres de la Guerra, The Disasters of War, was produced between approximately 1810 and 1820, but it was only first published in 1863, 35 years after Goya's death. In all of his graphic series, Goya experimented with different graphic techniques such as line engraving, dry point, aqua tint, burine and burnishing. The techniques are experimental and so also the world of motives they depict. It often breaks with earlier conventions, emphasizing inner fantasy worlds and not seldom takes a critical position on contemporary political and social situations. Los Desastres de la Guerra features powerful, horrific and gripping scenes of the victims of war 
and its perpetrators in the so-called Peninsular War between the French under the leadership of Napoleon's brother Joseph Bonaparte and the Spanish people that went on from 1808 to 1814. This graphic series bears a universal impression and is usually described as one of the most important pictorial statements against the phenomena of war, violence and conflict. The Universal is aligned in Goya series with connections to historical events and actual occurrences related to the French invasion of Spain. Goya depicted the most well-known execution scene in art history, as well as his own experiences of the horrors of war in the painting The 3rd of May 1808, which goes back to the actual event of an execution at Principe Pio Hill outside of Madrid. In the disasters of war, as in the painting I just mentioned, victims are sometimes depicted as shining Christ-like figures, sometimes as heroes, or as mutilated, vulnerable and anonymous bodies of flesh and blood. They stand in stark contrast to the perpetrators' threatening stances and attitudes. Goya had personally experienced the horrors of war both outside the city where he was born, Fuente Todos, outside of Zaragoza, in Madrid and in other places as well. His fascination for what he saw merges visually with powerful and contradictory feelings of loathing, despondency and sometimes possibly even rapture. The complex human psyche with its bottomless abyss of contradictions is thus negotiated in his work. The horrors of war in our own time are just as current as ever before now in a world that is marked in every direction by severe conflicts, war and misery. Los Desastres de la Guerra was preceded by a large number of interesting drawings in red chalk, which Goya used to sketch out the compositions that he later had engraved. Goya worked on the disasters of war between approximately 1810 and 1820. A number of trial proofs were made during this period, but the series was never published during Goya's lifetime. It wasn't until after his son Javier's death in 1862 that the plates were purchased by the Spanish Art Academy San Fernando in Madrid. The next year, 1863, the first edition of 500 copies of the around 80 pages of the graphic series The Disasters of War was published. Goya gave the first set of trial proofs to his friend Sean Bermudez, who possibly collaborated with Goya to write the various titles for the prints, which are descriptive, often sarcastic and rife with undertones. The series of trial proofs has a cover page with the explanatory text. The terrible consequences of the bloody Spanish war against Bonaparte and other striking capriches. 
The series received its more generic title in conjunction with the Spanish Art Academy's publication of the series in 1863. During the printing process at the Calcografía Nacional Engraving Center in Madrid in 1863, the printers came up with different ways to alter and intensify the expressions in the works with a heavier and more robust tone as compared to Goya's original test print, which is lighter and more finely toned in character. In the first edition from 1863, the color is richer and done in a tone that lends more blackness to the works than we see in Goya's own trial proofs from a much earlier period. The 20 prints from the series Los Desastres de la Guerra that are seen in this exhibition date from the first edition of the series from 1863, owned by the National Museum in Stockholm. Besides the over 80 prints in the series, National Museum has three complementary prints that relate to the disasters of war. Since 1863, seven more editions of Los Desastres de la Guerra have been printed. Los Desastres de la Guerra as a graphic series of war scenes finds a predecessor in the French graphic artist Jacques Callot's work Les Misères et les Malheurs de la Guerre from 1633, which depicts war motives in connection to the Thirty Years' War. One considerable difference between Callot's and Goya's works is that Callot renders the motives from a distance, deep into the pictorial space, while Goya has placed the scenes and the actors, often clustered together, close to the observer's own physical space. Goya's method strengthens the expression and makes it difficult for the observer to remain detached from the bloody scenes with mutilated bodies, rape victims, murdered corpses, victims and perpetrators. Thematically, Goya's disasters of war can be separated into three groups. The first group depicts the brutal acts of war that have been committed on innocent victims. The second group describes the victims of the famine in Madrid in 1811 and 1812, in which around 20,000 people died. And the third and final group is comprised largely of critical attitudes of the oppression that followed the restoration of the Bourbon monarchs in 1814. I have had the privilege of immersing myself in Goya's fascinating graphic work Los Desastres de la Guerra for many years. In 1994, I had the pleasure of working with National Museum's comprehensive exhibition on Goya's art. Then in 2003, I served as curator for a very well-received exhibition at National Museum with the title From El Greco to Dali, a dialogue with Spanish painting, in which works of the older Spanish masters were displayed alongside artworks in different techniques by, among others, Edouard Manet, Ernst Josephson, Antonio Saura, Francis Bacon and Jake and Dinas Chapman, artworks that in different ways relate to the older Spanish art. 
Magazine 3 loaned its fascinating graphic series Disasters of War by Jake and Dinos Chapman to the exhibition. At the time, Magazine 3 had not yet had the chance to show the Chapman brothers' work in their own location. Now, these two works of art meet again, but this time at Magazine 3 and in a new context. The circle is thereby completed, but it simultaneously widens to include complementary worlds of images and thoughts that in turn facilitate new pictorial and conceptual associations of great interest for all observers. The work Disasters of War from 1999 by the Chapman Brothers, on view in the exhibition Like a Prayer, consists of 83 etchings and is a sort of modern version of Goya's series with the same title. I guess, I guess in a sense, the, the interesting the thing that, again, we're interested in about the Disasters of War is the claims in which, to which Goya um, had direct experience of the uh, acts of violence and atrocity that are depicted in his images, which is, which is a kind of a distributed claim, actually, as to whether he actually saw any of these things. But what we're kind of interested in, in terms of our, uh, our drawings, is that, um, that, in a sense, what we've witnessed in terms of violence has only been negotiated through TV. Uh, so in some senses, what we're interested in is actually the, the, the lack of authenticity rather than the true claims of, of real um, proximity to violence. Um, which I think, I guess, in, in some sort of ironic sense, you know, it might be true to say that Goya was as equally, uh, equally, um, you know, uh, his, his claim, the claims to the, 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 the true, real, realistic representation of violence are as equally specious as ours. Uh, and also, uh, in our um, obsessional um, interest in Goya, which is obviously less to do with a, an expressionistic discourse than it is to do with just being merely spiteful. Um, we have also descended upon Goya's um, own work um, on many occasions, rectifying it for our own purposes. Um, it, we, we purchased a set of original uh, Goya Disasters of War, I think a third edition, and drew on it, um, altered it and rectified it. Um, and sold the work, and the intention being that there's a kind of a, a, a rollover fund, like a lottery fund, that, we, uh, that we, we put back into buying new Goya pieces that then we draw on. Um, the idea being that, you know, that just the, the, the initial uh, attack on the work is not gestural, that if we actually kind of have a, a, a rollover slush fund that actually we, we buy every single Goya set we can get our hands on, that in some senses what might actually happen is that there won't be any more disaster of war left, and uh, apart from ones drawn on with puppy heads and clowns' faces. That's the, uh, that's the intention. The four glass showcases in the exhibition comprise the work The Sum of All Evil. They are landscapes populated with thousands of miniature figures in an inferno of cruelty and humiliating violence. Mutilated bodies pile up into mountains and disfigured bodies have been fused together in deranged formations. Nazi soldiers, both as humans and skeletons, violate others and each other, and Ronald McDonald figurines cheer them on or have been crucified. Jake and Dinos have constructed a concept of complete evil, with the miniature figures from childhood games distorted and staged in a repulsive but simultaneously fascinating nightmare behind glass. We were interested in um, 
the idea of magnitude, the idea of the, the scale of, of a sublime pathos, how one makes a work of art um, that, uh, that somehow extorts an empathetic response from the viewer on the scale of uh, some kind of emotional pathos. Um, we like the idea that if you um, employ uh, toy soldiers, um, that what you offer the viewer is an omnipotent view over a scale of uh, a field of activity, which is, you know, the, the, it, it, like I said, it offers the, the viewer a godlike view. Um, but in some ways, there's, there's, a, there's a contradiction between the idea that it's possible for uh, a work of art like Some of, Evil, Some of All Evil to um, depict cruelty and death on a magnitude of scale, and yet there's something inappropriate about assuming that this thing has pathos because these are, after all, toy soldiers. Um, so the contradiction is, uh, or at least the, the, the thing we're interested in, is the idea of extorting human emotion from things that don't deserve that emotion. Um, we're interested in um, the degree to which humans have an empathetic response to things, to inanimate objects which deserve no such uh, response. Um, it's just very interesting how, um, uh, you know, a, a sculpture with 30,000, 40,000 figures can reduce people to a sense of um, um, compassion, compassionate awe and, um, you know, empathy. Uh, when, when in actual fact these figures are impoverished by their very m medium. Um, and I guess that's the thing we're interested in, is how we could actually um, co-opt objects that have no emotional value into some sort of economy of, of, of um, sadness and melancholy um, to produce a, a, a huge sculpture which elicits uh, a sentimental feelings from humans for us is, um, again, I, I guess, the, the object. And it's an object of ridicule, I guess. It's a, you know, there's something quite interesting about um, uh, producing an object which doesn't deserve the, uh, the emotional um, response that it receives. I think the, the relationship between violence and, and humour is that somehow, you know, I suppose that this is, as far as we're concerned, something to do with, with the economy of tragedy. Um, that something, that, that, that the idea of tragedy is also tinged with the idea of laughter. That somehow, um, that one finds oneself often looking at images of violence and, um, you know, Awful, awful atrocity that, uh, that in a sense sometimes the most inappropriate appropriate response is, is laughter because in a sense what laughter is is the visceral uh, outburst that exists in the schism between um, an object and its effect that's to say um, the kind of the breakdown of language the point at which language is, in, is incapable of expressing in, a, in a, a reasonable way the experience of what's seen. So in some senses, laughter is a kind of uh, an eruption of, a, of a, 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 a kind of a gurgling representation of death without words. When you enter the exhibition, you walk under a number of wooden beams with text on that go in all directions through the room. Some black crows sit on the beams and seem to be keeping watch over the exhibition. When you enter the exhibition, you'll see um, some uh, wooden beams um, crisscrossing the exhibition space with some text on. This is a kind of, uh, uh, you know, this is a, it's not meta-text, it's, a, it's a, a morbid subtext to the work um, that in a sense what would be nice is that, 
you know, the, uh, for us, is the imagination of an audience or a participant in the exhibition walking in, reading the text and perhaps tripping over a sculpture. That's a kind of, a, um, you know, one has to have hopes about how exhibitions work, and that may be one way of... <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of, um, you know, I think the, the, an immersive exhibition where um, I think we have, a, uh, we have a very low view of just simple pictorial works of art, and I think what we're trying to do is, is kind of raise the expectations of the viewer so that maybe when they read things, it might kind of, you know, we're kind of, I suppose we're helping them hand in hand through the exhibition by offering a, a, a kind of a, a semi-poetic analysis of the work, which, as I said, um, which might help or hinder their experience of the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, the text is difficult to talk about in as much as, um, you know, it's 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 a it's a kind of a, a, a piece of poetry which we prefer to describe as as sort of diseased articulation rather than metaphysical poetry. Um, in a sense, it's kind of you know it it it, it occupies the exhibition as as it, as some kind of cackling. Uh, haunted prose which just sort of kind of hovers above the head of the viewer as they're wandering around the exhibition um, you know and the crows spectate in, you know in a in a in a in an equally mocking way um, it's not it's not supposed to be there as a kind of a meta text in order to explain the work it's there as a as a kind of uh, an, an interruption to the work really um, and so uh, you know, it's just another. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's another level in which uh, the work is, the, the the work tries to incite sort of uh, a certain kind of um, panic in terms of, of what one expects one looks at when you walk into an art exhibition. Um, there also has some kind of sort of quite you know nasty, um, uh, I guess, harmonic restitution with things like the Arbat McFry uh, um, gate um, statement over. Um, um, concentration camps and some so in some senses it's kind of instructive in a, in a similarly um, pessimistic and cynical way but obviously not you know not doesn't function in the same way during the installation of the exhibition at magazine 3 Jake created a new sculpture in about the same spot where the sculpture stands now he worked intensely for two days the work includes the four final words from the text in the ceiling now eat your mind. There's a new work in the exhibition which um, I've sat in the corner making for the past couple of days and, um, and I'm not sure if that's necessary just simply to do with you know having something to do while I'm here um, or whether there's a you know a, a real conceptual um, uh, you know I mean I, I, in, in a sense it operates as a, as, a, as a punctuation to the text in terms of the fact that actually the last text ends up being on the sculpture rather than being on the beams. So yeah, it functions as a, as a piece of, of, of aesthetic punctuation. It's, it's a kind of an end point of a uh, I mean you consider it as a, a, a maybe um, the, the sinkhole at the end of a lot of, 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 of guttering, you know so that the kind of the words roll down into, the, into this hole which is the last last sort of ebb and flow of this sort of diseased piece of poetry which ends up as a, as a sculpture. With their own art, the Chapman brothers are also interested in making a statement about art production. They readily return to motives, repeating them, testing how much they can wring out of a single subject. They rework motives on different scales and in different materials, everything from plastic to wood, bronze and cardboard. 
etchings often appear in different editions, black and white, photonegative, full color, and so on. The exhibition's title is borrowed from a sculpture standing on a podium. The piece, The Nature of Particles, appears to have been made from wood and cardboard, but it is actually painted bronze. A group of figures that look like they were carved in a stereotypically African manner stand or kneel before an abstract sculpture. For me, the sculpture sets two incredibly generalized perceptions literally next to one another. The perception of what non-Western art and Western art look like and what status they have. I, I think the, the title Nature of Particles and the sculpture which um, bears that title is, 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 not so, is, is something to do with the idea of, um, you know, the, the nature of particles implies that somehow there's kind of some sort of microscopic truth to, to particles in general. Um, and I think we're kind of interested in the idea that even particles are an act of representation. That, um, you know, we're kind of interested in the idea of things being truthful and untruthful simultaneously. So, you know, you make a sculpture which is already um, kind of cack-handed and vulgar and um, it's kind of it's it's the opposite opposite of a particle in a sense it's the kind of the the lump and uh, aggregate of of of, a, of of mishandled materials turned into a sculpture then t transformed into bronze and then painted back to be the vulgar sculpture that it started in so in some senses what this what this work does is it actually refutes the notion that it has any kind of any kind of claim to any kind of truth whether it's the truth of particles or the truth of its own representation it's not it's neither one thing or the other and i guess the the, the idea of the nature of particles is that it kind of alludes to some idea of 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 some deferred idea of, of, of realism beyond the nature of phenomenology, you know, the phenomenon as we see it, you know, kind of lump and objects. Um, and I suppose that, you know, we kind of, there's a, there's, a, there's a mythical element to the idea of particles that's the, evidenced by the, um, you know, the, the semi-African figures that stand in awe of the modernist sculpture in the middle of the sculpture. You know, there's kind of two, I think there are two spoon African sculptures and, you know, it's just, it's kind of, you know, there's, there's something quite funny about the idea of, uh, you know, the, 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 the crappy modernist sculpture in the middle of, middle of the sculpture being the sculpture that the other sculptures are looking at. You know, there's a kind of an infinite regress where the truth of the sculpture is, whether it's actually the, the figurative element of the work or whether it's the material element, element of the work. And also, you know, the thing that's interesting about bronze is that it's the thing that you get when you're in third place. So it's not even something which has its own kind of truth to it. In the exhibition, there are also a series of framed drawings made with watercolour and ink. The paper that the Chapmans used are pages taken from a child's activity book, where images appear when you draw a line between numbered points. But as they so often do, Jake and Dinos have defied our expectations. They ignored the numerical order and completed them according to their own ideas, thereby creating alternative images. The not-to-dot drawings are um, similar in their uh, scientific, um, scientific orientation as the nature of particles sculpture is. Um, that's to say that... Um, you know, the, 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 the drawings come from children's dot-to-dot -dot books, but drawn incorrectly, as though somehow 
there's some kind of metaphysical truth in in not following the uh, the, the the linear sequence of, from zero to however many the top number is. Um, that somehow there's a there's a kind of a, a, a sort of a, 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 a secret geometry to be found by not following the dots, and that somehow that geometry would reveal some inner truth in the drawing. That somehow the pictorial drawing is 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 somehow. Uh, is, is, is deficient of. So in some senses it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of uh, assuming that there's some kind of abstract um, reality beyond these, the, the, the base materiality of the pictorial images that are offered for, for, for children to, to draw. And also in some ways that there's somehow there's some kind of, uh, you know, some unconscious geometry going on that somehow if you don't follow the dots in, in, the, in the normal order, that there's a, a different order of things which reveals some sort of libidinal unconscious beneath, beneath the pictorial sort of re realism of the images. The piece is titled Not to Dot, which is obviously, uh, you know, rather than dot to dot, which would be to follow the thing in a linear pattern. Um, but it's, it's about sort of uh, um, the, the, the notion that somehow, you know, the beyond, beyond the beyond realism, there's another form of realism. There's a, there's a true nature to things if you don't follow the true nature of, of, of the dot to dot. If you, if you do not to dot, you end up with something which is more, you know, more metaphysically sort of resonant, which is obviously a very stupid idea. When you walk around the exhibition, you're never completely alone. Standing here and there, you will find others looking at the art. They are life-size figures, dressed in floor-length white robes and cone-shaped hoods that only reveal the eyes. The outfit is characteristic of the extremist organization Ku Klux Klan that historically, and still today, has fought for white supremacy. For a long time, the different fractions within Klan culture have been associated with racist opinions, burning crosses and lynching. In the exhibition, the figures' white costumes are charred at the edges. They have smiley faces on their chests and wear Birkenstock sandals with thick rainbow-striped socks. Strong symbols that stand for wildly different phenomena and opinions. The, the exhibition is also populated by um, some figures which are dressed in um, KKK outfits and um, rainbow-coloured socks and Birkenstock shoes and they have smiley badges on their chests. Um, these are, um, it's difficult to explain what these things are. Um, quite clearly, they're kind of chimerical, hypocritical objects because they, 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 they appear, they have the uniforms of, of white supremacists, but they also have um, socks of um, Californian hippies. And uh, so in some ways, um, it's best to not really, for me, to not over over explain them because, in some ways, the idea of their paradox is the thing which makes them sort of function properly. Um, you know, I think I think you know, just as just in terms of one kind of hint as to how maybe they might be looked at is that the, the idea of the utterance Philip Guston might help. The figures in the strange and paradoxical outfits can also be found in the cinema, where you can watch. Fucking Hell, a compilation of numerous films that Jake and Dinos have made through the years. Kino Club is a, 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 a little cinema that we've installed. Um, it's a, a, an installation of, a, of um, chairs and um, a, a few figures, a few um, 
indigenous population of uh, KKK viewers who are permanently watching this film until the ends of time. Um, it's the, the, the film is a compilation of lots of films we've made over the years, uh, uh, compressed into one um, long film. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it, it's kind of non-linear. It, uh, it, it begins with um, the birth of me and my brother. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it is what it is really. I mean, it's just a kind of a, a, a rambling um, set of images which are kind of, you know, if, if, if anything, if they, if, they, if they are like anything, they, they're kind of like, or assume it might look like just before it's, I, I guess actually, if anything, it's a, it's a kind of, one of those kind of uh, a flash edit of uh, what me and Dinos will see just before we die. To round up, I asked Jake about his and Dinos' collaboration. I think um, the, the, the idea of working together, um, the decision to do it was made because, it, in a sense, it was a way of um, perhaps even um, more efficiently um, provoking a, a kind of, a, a, well, at least an attack on the notion of producing art as an autobiographical, autobiographical um, act. Um, we wanted the work to be um, uh, to, to 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 emerge from the consequence of a discourse rather than an internal sort of reflection. So that the work is not the, the the manifest expression of some latent sort of uh, navel gazing consideration of of, of internal uh, mechanisms. That rather than it is an aggregate of of all of the things that we think about the world. That's not to say that um, the work obviously is not infected by some unconscious drives, but um, you know that what we wanted to do was to make the work uh, critically and politically active rather than just being the manifestation of, of, of our um, desire. Um, the work, how that works in terms of practical uh, practicalities is that there's no methodology to, 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 the, to, the, to the everyday um, practice in the studio. It's um, um, it's chaotic activity, which is um, defined by the fact that a, a sculpture or a work of art or a print or a painting gets made, dependent upon who's in the studio first, um, or also who's in the studio last. Um, for example, if Dinos leaves early, then I get to change everything that he's done in that day, or you know. If Dinos is in earlier than me, then the same same thing happens. So yeah, yeah. It's there's there's not. It's kind of like a there's no. I mean, we worked for Gilbert and George for a while, for quite a while actually. Dinos worked for seven years, and and what we learned from working with them was that they have uh, their attitude towards working together is one of achieving a kind of a symbiotic relationship where the work is the perfect harmonization of their agreement about what a work of art should be. Um, I think mine, Dinos's idea about producing the work is quite the opposite. That's not to say that there's, a, um, that there's an aggressive component in our production, but there's the, we're quite, quite interested in the idea that the work, the work doesn't have to be the democratic, democratic outcome of two people. Um, in a sense, the work also has its own voice in the production of the work. It, 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 it's a, it's a, a fully formed component of the production of the work as well, um, which is why we return to, a, to, to 
um, images of our own work and the uh, replication of, of ideas over and over again um, to ensure the fact that the work doesn't kind of slide towards autobiography. Goya has created some of the most powerful and admired depictions of violence in the history of art, a series of etchings that is seen to be an unromantic documentation of evil with the intention of discouraging violence. Jake and Dinos Chapman blend violent images with humor and absurdity, thus throwing the observer into a state of moral confusion, wavering between disgust and fascination. Time and again, the Chapman brothers have returned to Goya's depictions of war. They have made their own etchings and have also created sculptures of certain iconic motifs. Still, their work is frequently criticized for being provocations, simply showmanship. But what makes them different? Are they at all different? How are we affected by Goya's etchings? And how are we affected by the Chapman Brothers' works? I believe that most of us are scared by evil, at the same time as we are drawn toward war and the grotesque. It is interesting to reflect on this complexity and how it is represented and received. With this exhibition, I want to give you the opportunity to take part in two groundbreaking artistic practices, separated by 200 years, both of which deal with the very darkest aspects of humankind. The audio guide is produced by Magazine 3 in collaboration with Rask Musikdesign. <laughs>